History, Lecture 115, Rabbi Bleiweiss. So, Rabbi Ashkacha Pratis, we happened to speak this morning um, very, very briefly about um, the events of coming this week, what they call Yom Zikaron, Yom, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, and the celebration. So I'm going to slow it down here, because in history we try to cover the important issues. Um, the question that I, that I put out there, as we now, we did a historical overview of this period of what we call Mechemet Tashach, um, the, uh, the War of Independence in secular terms. The, um, is this, how are we supposed to relate to this time in history? Clearly, it's one of miracles of Ashkach Pratis. I don't think there's much question about that. The question is, is how in general do we relate to it, to all of its symbols, to this prayer that some in the national religious world started at this time and continue today. They start saying they, they have special prayers. One is L'Shalom HaMedina, the Tfilas L'Shalom HaMedina, that includes the controversial line uh, that the, claiming that the state is at the beginning of the flowering of the redemption, which is a questionable line from a religious perspective. Um, another, another. They, they say um, a less problematic tefillah, to, uh, especially composed for the peace, the, we- the well-being of the soldiers. Um, anytime one adds to any of our observance, to any of our of any of our liturgy, it's a question in halachic terms, one that's debated. It's not for a class for right now, but it's certainly a question: Can you do that? Um, the how one deals with the symbols of the state. Most notably, Yom Ha'atzmaut, the Day of Independence, which um, we're going to now focus on more. And um, is it a good thing, a bad thing, somewhere in the middle? Uh, everything, one of the conversations I had after the class that would have been valuable probably in the middle of the, of the discussion is that there's nothing in Torah that's neutral, that doesn't have some kind of a religious aspect to it. So you can't, you have to say one way or the other, how do we relate to the times in which we're living and the events of our day and a very, very significant uh, development where the Jewish people have semi-sovereignty in their holy land. Clearly that's from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, but what is it and how do we relate to that? So I, I don't claim to have any inside information or knowledge, just my own research. It seems to me this is the exact kind of a topic that you'd have to turn to the great leaders of a generation and see, well, what did they say? Um, The idea is what's called Das Taira, something I threw out this morning without elaborating, without really explaining what it is. The idea of Das Taira is um, not our fault. That one, I know. You found the Bible. Okay. The the idea of Das Taira is that the... The, the rabbis are not perfect, and their knowledge is not infallible. Uh, they, we, we don't have nevuah, we don't have, we don't have, we don't have prophecy nowadays, and a, a, a rabbi might make a mistake even. That's part of the package. In Christianity, the Pope is perfect, and that's why he can contradict himself from one day to the next, and both, both opposite statements somehow are both true, but that's not necessarily how, how we look at it. So then what is the idea of Das Torah? Das Torah is they know more than we do. Just like one would go to experts in medical affairs and engineering and other things who have more training. These, the Gedolim have greater knowledge. They also have a Ruach HaKodesh. They have certain kind of um, divine assist because assuming that they are big tzaddikim, uh, they, they, they know things that the average mortal person doesn't know. So I would defer to their knowledge on questions that are ultimately up to our hunch. So that's why I'm going to do a, a brief survey of certain opinions um, to see 
what do we, what, where do we, how do we relate to these times? Uh, and of course, it, it pertains to this time in history and many, many offshoots um, in the long term. Go ahead, Ilan. I am gonna, but I'm gonna. I have the luxury of time to elaborate. Whereas before, I think it was for my liking. I mean, listen, I work with what I have. I think the ideas are important to raise, so I bring them up in the half hour. I cram it into the half hour that I have to speak. But now I'm not gonna cram it in. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them uh, do do, uh, uh, you know, give, give them their, their due and and uh, and, and fair, fair treatment. The um, the results will be mixed. Um, Rav Cook. We've seen Rav Avram Yitzhak Akohen Kuk, who we've talked about, we mentioned this point, died in 1935, and as much as the national religious world cites him as their progenitor, as their ideal, as their, as their role model, um, but to say that his view is their view is a bit of a stretch since he died, let's say on this topic, eight, um, 13 years before the state was declared, before independence was declared on that fateful uh, Hey ER May 14th, 1948. So uh, what his view would have been exactly is hard to assess. One, clearly he was very positive about the notion, and we learned that here, about the idea that Jews coming back into their land and establishing a state, whether he would have been thrilled with the terms, whether he would have um, agreed with having a national holiday, uh, where the sometimes people are negligent in the areas of the, the halachas around Spiris Omer, where one's not allowed to listen to music, uh, or, or, or start dancing, or celebrating, or, or shaving, or cutting hair, or anything of the sort. Um, it's only guessing, it's only speculative what we can say in Rob Cook's name. Um, and the, I'll cite a few other figures from that perspective, from that world. His son, let's say, who I did quote earlier, Tzvi Yehuda Cook, who we're going to meet later on. He is probably his. Um, he was a Rosh Hashiva, Nerkaz Rav Yeshiva. We'll, we'll learn about him. Probably the most salient uh, detail in his life, what people associate him with, is the founding of the movement called Gush Emunim, which is after the Six Day War, the movement to settle many of the biblical lands that the, that the Israel state suddenly found itself having conquered after 1967, and um, seeing that as a messianic ideal that the Jews would repopulate these lands and integrate them, um, that's very much something one associates with him. About the events of Tashach of 1948, he had the following to say, anyone who refuses to recognize the state of Israel, clearly he disagrees with many of his contemporaries, with, with what I'm going to try to argue is really the majority of the great post scheme, the great Torah figures of the day, he's clearly standing in, in opposition to them. He says, anyone who refuses to recognize the state of Israel does not recognize the return of Ashkoch Pratis to Tzion. He's really this, he embodies this view that let's look at the miracles, let's look at the good, the positive side and try to imbue it with religious meaning and, 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 and sensitivity. Um, yeah. Um, let's not confuse the times. I'm talking about Rav Cook's view in 1948. So 19, after 1967, 20 years later or so, so he would start, he, later, even after that really, Gush Emunim would start. Um, today, which group are you for? I mean, there are many groups. One doesn't hear so much about Gush Emunim because they've, re, they've reorganized their different groups now that are more prominent, but what are you thinking of? 
but one one associates, let's see what, you know, just use terms that people use about the groups, the more right-wing settler movement, one associates that with Rabbi Kook and his ideology. Uh, and clearly, I mean, even in his words, there's a, there's a, there's a shtickle defensiveness. You should see this. You should, you should, and, and there's, um, in the national religious world, there is sometimes a little bit of anger or venom or bitterness uh, expressed against the rest of the religious world. Hey, how come you guys aren't involved in this too? You should see the good too. Um, it's hard if you have a pa impassioned view to sit and see the other guy who doesn't agree, doesn't affirm, um, sitting there, it's a bit threatening and un unsettling. So what, one hears that, certainly in his words and others as well. Another voice in this, in this world, who I did quote earlier as well, I have some, I have some uh, positions that I did not have a chance to flesh out earlier this morning. Rav Yehuda Amital, who is the Rosh Hashiva of, um, until, until just a couple of years ago he passed away, a Rosh Hashiva in Gush Etzion, together with Rav Lichtenstein, he, he had pointed out that, um, that the events of the day were what he saw as miraculous. Just the day before the evacuation of the area of Gush Etzion, the four kibbutzim, that had endured a massacre at the hands of the Arabs, had been surrounded and, uh, and brutally, brutally um, uh, killed. Those who, those who remained were, 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 uh, were massacred, um, 150 victims all, all told. He said the next day, Rav Amital, he, of course, is among those who returned to Gush Etzion after, six, after the Six-Day War. He says, the next day on Yom Atzmut, everyone recited a hollow with great excitement. Clearly, in his circles, that was what was happening. That was not the case across the religious world. People danced in the streets. It was a strong sense of history that prompted this. There was a strong belief that it was not, he quotes the Pasuk in Tehillim, it was not by their sword that they took the land, but by your right hand and your arm. Referring to Kaddish Baruch Hu, it's the classic religious sensibility, religious Zionism speaks. Every view brings to it what they like to see about the day. And that's Rav Amital, Rav Kuk, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Kuk are, are projecting onto the day their own view. And assuming that everyone saw it this way, uh, presumably in their surroundings, that is indeed the people around them were, were seeing it as a religious miracle uh, invested kind of experience. I don't think that was characteristic of most people in the country. Most people in the country at this point were either secular or traditional secular who did not necessarily associate the victory with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. By the contrary, there was a big celebration about the work of what the army accomplished. And as we saw consistent with other developments, writing a Kaddish Baruch Hu out of the script, out of the narrative. Um, but okay, so they saw, it, they saw it the way that they did. Um, here's another view, I didn't have a chance uh, to mention, uh, the time to mention this earlier. The chairman of the Aguda of the United States, the Aguda being the political arm of the, what we think of as the Haredi world, um, was Reuven Grzovsky, great figure in Tyra, um, son-in-law of Rav Baruch Baer Leibovitz, and the great figure in his own right. Um, he, said, he said that earlier, Orthodox Jews, he describes how from Jews refused to be associated with any organization that would not recognize the authority of Tyre. So now he's, he's now grappling with what do we do? He's introducing this idea, now you got a, a state. And it's a state that's being recognized by the majority of the nations of the world. And it's, so it's a real entity. There's a lot of money pouring through the state. They've got the power. They're the ones who are now determining whether we go to jail or we don't go to jail. They control our lives to a certain degree, therefore. And now, as Orthodox Jews, how do we relate to this? 
I mean, before, up until 1948, these discussions were mostly theoretical because we were living under somebody else's uh, jurisdiction. It was the British mandate. But now it's Jews governing Jews, and the nature of the body that's governing Jews is a decidedly secular body, Machal Shabbos and the rest. How do we relate to this? He says, there's, he, and this is what Rav Grzowski refers to, he says, this is the difference between a state and a movement. In a state, should we not participate in the elections? Because there's a big debate, even till today, as you noticed in the last elections, Satmar and others were, were, were paying money, paying good, good cash to people who would not vote. There is a view, and I'm going to get into that view as well, the, the um, strongly um, outspoken uh, contingent of anti-Zionism um, to the point that you should have nothing to do, don't vote, don't participate. In a purest sense, there are people in Sabra who won't even accept state funds, which, whether you agree with them or don't agree with them, at least they're being intellectually honest and consistent with themselves. Okay, you don't, you know, the, the, as, the, as the postdoc says, I don't want neither, neither your sting nor your honey. Is the expression lo, lo, mi tseif, lo mi I don't either. I don't. Want, I neither want your sting nor your honey. So okay, you don't agree. So don't accept. Don't take their money. I don't know if that idea could really be fully followed through uh, to its nth degree to the same people that are Satmar people today who don't receive state funds, which they, they could live, get. They live, they, live in Israel. they live in Israel. And I don't know. They couldn't register. They could enroll. They could receive it. They choose not to. But my that's the next point I'm going to say. That's what I'm going to say. In other words, how much of a purist are they really? Do they refuse to use the garbage cans? You know, they burn their own garbage. They won't take any water or electricity, I assume, if they're really purists. They'll have nothing to do. They don't accept. I mean, okay, you say that's but that's subsidized by the government. Meaning, if you're really a purist, you would disconnect it. I don't see how that's feasible. I don't know. You can do that, but okay. Just raising the issue. Uh, you know, there's purists and there's purists. In any case, Rogozovsky now is articulating the other view. What we can, what we, what I sometimes call pragmatic, uh, the pragmatic Torah view of what do we do now that there is a fact in the ground called the state? Should we participate in elections? And he was in favor. And he, he he continues. He says he says if we didn't participate in the elections, it would mean relinquishing basic rights. That, and then even helping them to rule over us with greater strength. Meaning, because they have a democracy, that's their issue. They want to have a de democratic rule, fine, let them have a democratic rule. Um, so, but according to their terms, they will allow us to vote, they'll even allow us representation in the Knesset, so let's take it. And let's at least try to eke out the best kind of uh, deal, compromise, for our um, constituency. For, for the people who we, who we represent. That, that's pragmatic Torah view of, of the state. That's the, the dominant view that we're going to hear. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And that's, um, honestly, since that time, one sees that with the Haredi parties, initially there was no Sephardi Haredi party per se. We'll talk about the rise of Shas in the 1980s, but this is, uh, this is long before. There was, um, there was the Maftal, there was the National Religious Party, and then there was, um, there was the Aguda that later on became a split between the Aguda and the De Degel but the, but the Torah parties will do exactly that. They're giving out money for their institutions. Let's get money for the yeshivas. For the for, for the chadarim for the chinuch atzma'i, which we'll hear about, let's try as best we can to help Tyra. Um, they're accused often. There's great resentment within the Israeli society, which we're going to have to discuss. But the Torah faction is accused of partisanship of trying to just get for their own people. Um, that may be, 
But the feeling is not just a selfish feeling. The feeling is if you can support Torah, and if you can get state funds to support yeshivas, ultimately that's for the betterment, betterment of all of Klal Yisrael. You know that if we have strong Torah in Klal Yisrael, we're, we're more likely to bring Mashiach. I'm just telling you obvious things that are, that are essential to our amuna, to our part of our belief. And so in the end of the days, our belief is that they'll thank us for our political efforts to try to help the Torah world. And then it's not at all just a selfish ploy, is this, is this view. Okay, so that's, that's one view. Uh, here's what I did mention, and here I do have notes. I didn't have it in my other notes, my other share. So Rav Kahanaman, the great Rosh Hashiva, we're going to meet him, and he's, he's a very wonderful figure, tremendous, uh, inspiring personality. Rav Kahanaman was the Rosh Hashiva in Panovich, who was Rosh Hashiva in Panovich back in the old country, and he came to Eretz Shell and built Panovich from scratch in Bnei Brak. Today, one of the flagship yeshivas in all of Eretz Yisrael. And um, he flew the Israeli flag on Yomad's wounds. And they asked him, why? Because he clearly wasn't Zionist. He wasn't in favor of the government. He said, I flew the Lithuanian flag on the roof of my yeshiva in Panovich on the Lithuanian Independence Day. Because just like you have to daven for the Shalom HaMalchus, you have to daven for the peace of the government there, so too you have to do it here. He says, my friends, it's no worse here. We daven that the thing should be okay for the government. Do they daven for the peace of Yes, but not by having special extra prayers. That's a separate issue and problematic. But certainly we want the Shalom the Malchus. Right? Shalom al we say we end our Shmon Israel every day with Shalom for Am Israel, and Am Israel is situated today in Eretz Israel. So by all means, we daven for that. It's true. Right. So that doesn't mean you have to identify as a full-fledged citizen, uh, you know, red, white, and blue on July 4th in America. It means you generally support America and show hakara satov, show gratitude for the good things that the American society has done. So too in Israel, you can see the good on a pragmatic level. He says, he says um, but about the state itself, people want to say, oh, sometimes you hear in this, in this discussion, the Mizrahi movement will say, well, Kahanaman was, was in favor of the state. Well, I'll let you decide that for yourself. Elsewhere, um, I'm quoting him, he describes the leaders of the new state as, quote, going the way of Ahav. Y'all remember Ahav HaRasha, one of the seven who doesn't have a portion of the world to come. Uh, he says, and they, they do, they're at war with the holy ones of the Jewish people. Oh my. Um, he was constantly, he was, he, was, he's a, he was an extremely effective doer, fundraiser and builder and a very inspiring figure, very unique figure in Klal Yisrael. We'll meet him, as I said. Um, and he was constantly being asked, why don't you use your great talents that Baruch Hu gave you to serve in the Knesset? We want you to serve in the Knesset. And he constantly said no and explained why he wouldn't do it. He said, I'm too poor to sit in the Knesset. Said, why? What does it mean? You're too poor to sit in the Knesset? He said, yes. See, I, would, I, I don't have enough money to, for all those clothes. He said, clothes? Why do you need some clothes? He said, because I'd have, in, in every day, I would be exposed to the various um, words of kfira, of heresy, and the mile hasosa, the words of incitement, I'd have to tear kriya in my clothes. I can't afford all the new clothes. Can't serve in the Knesset, he said. No, you don't have to rip the clothes. He's making a joke. But it's sort of not really a joke. He's saying it's, it's a way of conveying the idea. I can't, in other words, when you say, I can't sit there. I can't hear the words, the words of heresy. I can't sit there and be exposed to that on a daily basis. My neshama can't take it. 
which is, you know, on a certain level, we are supposed to emotionally internalize the words of Torah to this point. So you can understand why a person wouldn't want to do it. I'll quote again Rav Menachem Kasher, who's of the, we'll meet him as well, uh, a, one, a big Talmud Chacham from the Ger Hasidic world, um, who wrote that he felt, some felt as if Hashem was saying, uh, a great play on words, the famous Medrash by Shira Siyam, Hashem rebukes the angels, the work of my, of my hands is drowning in the sea, and you're, you want to sing a song, uh, why are you celebrating? So his response to Yom Atzmut, to the, to, the, to the celebrations, the revelry of Yom Atzmut, he said, but we're drowning in a, in a sea of, of, of heresy, how could we sing songs? reflecting the ambivalence of the times of the day. Uh, he, says, he says, even if we've seen authentic miracles, how, is, how are these times, how is it relevant yet to be celebrating? Um, and his response was, he felt, he felt a mixed bracha. He felt like on the one hand, one should say, Baruch Diana Emes, uh, as, as if one just heard of a shocking death. And then immediately, Baruch Hatova Meiti, which is the bracha one says, when, he, when you learn that you're about to get an inheritance. There's immense good and there's immense bad, and it's all a mixed package. And what is our appropriate response? They questioned if that's if it's relevant to celebrate. Um, Chazonish said disagreed with the Chafetz Chaim. He says he doesn't think that the state certainly represents the Aschalt of the Gula, the beginning of the redemptive process. He calls it the end of the Gullus, perhaps the last great test, Nisayon, before the Mashiach can come. He says, the land is indeed, it's the portion of the Avos. It's the Nachala Sa'avos, he calls it. It's not the Nachala of the Tzionim. Um, that's why he and others were makbid never to call the, la- the, the state of Israel just Israel. He always called it Eretz Yisrael. It's not, it's not a domain of a secular people. Um, and therefore, one needs to behave in this country as one would behave in the palace of the king, capital K. And since that's not happening, um, one has great reason to be ambivalent, um, strongly ambivalent about the various uh, events of the day. Uh, I mentioned Rav Moshe, Rav Moshe who avoids the topic, and my, my suggestion, why I suggest he avoids the topic, it's so emotionally laden, and most simple-minded people, which is most people, they associate, oh, if you're a good Jew, you love Israel, and then you love the state. They don't make all these what they would consider hair-splitting dis- uh, distinctions. Um, and so not to upset the masses, um, Yitzhi just stepped out? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, not to upset the masses, Surah Moshe, I, I, proje- I, I assert, maybe didn't discuss it so much, but he, as I mentioned, he gave himself away in this, in this chuva about the flag. Can you have a flag in a shul, both an American flag and Israeli flag? And he said, he said, um, he said, if there's a way, I'm quoting, without causing any argument to remove the flag from the shul, then you should do so. And that's true, the American flag and the Israeli flag, about, about for the, but for the Israeli flag, in a specific comment, he said, if there's a way of removing the Israeli flag, there should be no reminder of that Maisa Harashaim, the act of the wicked people, then it's correct to do so, but then he concludes, it's chas v'shalom never if this would cause a machlokas. Any, any argument to come out of this, and there are many arguments, people sometimes delight in having the arguments, and I described my former student from Derech who um, lived for these arguments. He loved to start up with people. That's not our spirit, that's not what Rav Moshe is saying. But he was clearly, um, also had these conflicted feelings about the state and the flag and, and um, all, the, all the icons, certainly Yom HaTzmo, one imagines, um, 
the Briskarov. We've met the Briskarov. We've heard what he said. We've heard some of his wisdom on the events of the time. He talked about, you remember, he, we talked about his reaction to the partition plan on November 29, 1947, and tried to assess how could the nations who've been historically against, not aligned with Klal Yisrael, how could the nations be in favor of what we're doing? And he said, well, they thought that this would be the end. This is their way of getting us without directly getting us. Um, on the states, he understood the Briskarov, who, remember, he is the son of Rav Chaim Brisker. He's the uncle of Rav Soloveitchik from YU. His brother was Rav Moshe, Rav Soloveitchik's father. Okay, so the Briskarov understands the establishment of the state as the cause, the cause, he sees it as the cause of, this, of a new phenomenon in the world that did not previously exist. What's he referring to? The sudden explosion in ferocious, unprecedented hatred of the Jews by Arabs everywhere, by Muslims and Arabs everywhere. He said, that's what the state... Yeah, but there was that before the state. Uh, he sees the whole package, meaning, right, but that, it was, there was not that before the Zionist movement, right? Before the 1880s, he didn't talk about the Arabs, there was no Arabs in the conflict, per se. I mean, it's, we've tried to be clear in history. It's not like we were best friends. They also persecuted the Jews. But there's no conflict insofar as we, we, we think of in terms of Arab-Israeli. He said the whole, what led into the state, and certainly the state itself, the crescendo, the establishment of the state, what they call Nakba Day, right? Suddenly, what, what, is, what, what is the great gift? Has the state given Klal Yisrael, terrific, some gift, is the, the ever, the, the, to, the, to their dying day, the enmity of Arabs, all of the, do you realize, I mean, you probably do realize this, that there are um, Arabs around the world, Muslims around the world, I'm using the terms interchangeably, they're not interchangeable, not all Arabs are Muslim, not all Muslims are Arabs. But in this area, most Muslims and most Arabs hate with such a driving passion the Jewish people that on some level it's their largest driving passion, they're more passionate about it than sometimes even serving Allah. In a way that just boggles the mind, it's irrational, how could they hate so much? And so receptive that you hear the preachings of the imams, the moises, the, the, what they have to say, the venom, constant, and, and, and it's, it's shocking, it doesn't make sense. And he says, thanks Zionism for creating that. that that's his perspective on this. He says they hate Jews, not just in Israel, Jews wherever they are. Uh, we're going to see this, this unprecedented, do you know there's no such thing in this time in history, 1948, as the suicide bomber? That's a pure creation of the movement, of the Palestinian movement, of the movement to drive the Jews from their land. And then it spread throughout the world, and now it's used by people as far and diverse as the Boko Haram in Nigeria, having nothing to do with Israel. But the whole idea was born and started out of hatred of the Jews because of the state. He simply points out, I think he's onto something. Right? Arab behavior cannot be explained in any way that's not somehow spiritual. He says it's divinely ordained. Right? He, he explains in nature usually the losing side concedes. He says that's usually what happens. Like you lose. He's okay, yeah, all right, so what are you doing? Better luck next time. But no. After every loss, and if you study the wars as we're studying them, every loss, the Arabs are strangely invigorated by their many defeats. And then each round, they start up again with a renewed, increased lust for vengeance. Um, again, the, he, he points out the suicide bomber was specifically invented against the Israeli. Uh, 
there's no this worldly explanation. A person would, would, I mean, okay, you could say that maybe it's parallel to Japanese kamikaze who existed all the way back and so on. It was, a, it was one of their weapons during World War II. But um, the, uh, that was the kamikaze. Would, they would fight in battle till the death. The notion that a person would get on a bus with civilians, that was new. We don't have many precedents, any precedents in history for such behavior. And that was an invention. Is that whole idea was that no matter what, I'm going to end up dead. At least the kamikaze things, you know, like, if we won the battle, we live. Correct. That's right. That's right. Here, it's, it's, you're now promised, uh, you know, a life in the, in the eternal paradise. With, that's, that's, that, that was, that was a reaction to the creation of the state of Israel. Um, and this, this concept is not even in Islam, classic Islam either. You don't, is that what you're going to ask? Yeah, yeah. That's where the Briscoe Rabb says this. You research, you find that in a classic. Classicism has no concept of suicide bomber. Jihad is not one of the five principles of the uh, main principles of Sunni. It, it, jihad is a Shia idea. But even, even jihad has been distorted uh, and, and, and made into something really brand new. Fundamental radical Islam that we have today is, has been shaped to a large degree by Zionism. Tiny little people, we influence the whole makeup of the world today. And in this way, Briskorov understood much for the worse. Um, he says the great bloodshed is at least partly due. And it, I mean, it tries to be reasonable. He doesn't say it's entirely due. It's at least partly due to the cavalier attitude of the Zionist leaders. You remember the description of what went into the vote of the for the petition plan. Uh, but many other instances too. The they didn't really care. They just they just uh, cavalier is a good choice of words for this. And you know, we'll just do it. And they'll have to live with it, won't they? Was their attitude. Well, that won them many, 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 and millions of enemies around the world, again, willing to die, willing to, to take this battle to their death. Um, in Iran, one hears, the, one hears the Ayatollahs preaching, and they say, and Israel, and they, they splatter blood on themselves. One of the unique um, um, uh, insanities of, of Shia Islam, they like to check animals and splatter blood on themselves and they talk about and we will all be die we will all die they will nuke us and that will be fine because we will go to Ganinin we will all be rewarded for that eternally and they they're motivated by that. that 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 works for them he points to the irony that the Jewish state and this is one we're going to have to explain this later on as well we'll, we'll come back to this insight the irony that the Jewish state claims to be the defenders of Jews around the world, and with the law, they're going to, we're going to see there's a law, a new law of return, that now any Jew in the world is, has automatic citizenship in, in, this, in the state of Israel. Um, but in fact, they also, they, that may be, but they're also the primary catalyst for violence against Jews everywhere in the world. So the world is simultaneously a, maybe a safer place if, there's a, if this is considered a haven, but it's also it's a much scarier place, not only because of the state of Israel. Uh, I'll elaborate a little bit. I mentioned very briefly Rav Yol Teitelbaum, the great Satmar Rebbe, big tzaddik, who we're going to also meet as well. He said that everything that takes place by Jews in Eretz Yisrael before Mashiach comes, all of this is de facto an act of Satan and, and should be fought. Um, this is hard to reconcile with the existence of, of large Satmar communities who live just down the street from us. Um, I think the way they understand it is he didn't include them. He's including anybody who's um, in any way participating in the state, including even the religious parties who have who are in, who are serving Knesset. That's why Satmar generally um, avoids the elections, avoids political involvements. Um, the people who are here, Satmar Jews who are here, are here understanding this is the eternal home of Klal Yisrael, and they're doing damage control. 
It was, at least we're here, we're going to try to make the best of the worst, and by keeping mitzvahs, by learning Torah, and by not participating in the state, uh, we can actually make things better in the long run, and they too feel that in the end of days, when Mashiach comes and all matters are clarified, everybody will turn to them in gratitude for their efforts. Even though right now, they don't perceive the Satmar as their friends, but in the long run, they will see, they will, they will understand that this was done L'Shem Shemaim. On Yom HaTzmaut, not just Satmar, but members of Toldos Aaron, Toldos Avram Yitzchak, Munkach, Vishnitz, and others. I'm just mentioning some of the larger groups. Um, uh, many, uh, many of these you've noticed are Hasidim. They fast on Yom HaTzmaut. They display a black flag. They wear ashes and sackcloth. They are trying to atone for the chait of, having, of, of, of the Jewish state having been created before the coming of the Mashiach. They hold, if you remember the discussion of the three oaths, the three oaths, that they're still binding, and so anybody who would take Eretz Yisrael by force is in violation of the oaths, and therefore preventing the Mashiach from arriving. Okay, that's another view. Um, the Ali Shor, or Shlomo Boldi, who is understood to be one of the great Ali Musr, the last generation, uh, he has a simple question. He doesn't understand how anyone can know anything with certainty. I'm quoting him, who can determine with certainty the events of the day and say that this is a schalt of the gula unless he's a prophet? We don't have prophets now. Since we don't know, it seems that our best approach, our best policy is one of humility and to say, okay, could be, let's now try to fix ourselves and make ourselves worthy of Mashiach coming. Um, I'll finally, I'll quote Rav Yosef Dov Selavechik, who represents Yeshiva University and many people in the modern Orthodox world say that he was and remains their gadol, and so his views would certainly be instructive. He was positive about the establishment of the state insofar as, I'm quoting him, no one can deny from the standpoint of international relations the establishment of a state was an almost supernatural occurrence. Um, so he sees the positive, but he says, the, he talks about the Omer restrictions. He says, they're utterly enforced throughout the Sphiris Omer. According to all Minhagim, uh, Yom Asmut falls right smack in the middle. So however you hold during of the Omer, whether you start from Pesach and end Lagba Omer, start in Rosh Chodesh and Shavuos, Memanashach, however you slice and dice it, Yom Asmut, there's no music, there's no dancing, there's no cutting hair, there's none of that. And he was very strong in criticizing that practice, even though one, one hears very much in the modern Orthodox for national, national religious populations, one hears people relaxing these restrictions. Um, he says, he questioned any addition to tefillah, and about the fifth of ER, he says, I don't care about the day, there's no Kedusha Sayom. He says, he asks about the founding of the state, does that mean that this is the beginning of the redemption? His response, no. Yemei Mashiach, these days of the Messiah, no. All the stupidity, I'm against it. Not a, none of you one usually hears. Um, so, that's a bit of a summary, an overview of how, of how different Gedolim looked at these um, developments in the modern day and our attitude. I think the common denominator should be of mixed views. Not everybody's of the same mind, but a sense of um, humility. And since we don't know better, we are, it, it's maybe premature to be celebrating, to quote Raviel Schwartz, he, said, he says like this, it's like a patient, Raviel Schwartz says it like this, it, a patient who's in mortal danger gets the early preliminary reports from his doctor that things might be taking a positive turn. 
Does he immediately go out into the streets and start dancing? No, he starts trying to watch his diet, trying to take whatever medical treatment uh, intervention he can, therapies that are gonna work for him. But it, it's a time of, of, of working on oneself, not a time yet of celebration. Go ahead. Is it possible could we go over the, the Orsmeyaks? Uh, well, he was not alive anymore at this point. No, but on his three... Uh, well, we mentioned it briefly when we talked about the Balfour Declaration that he held that the, and, and the various views about, about the, um, the, the normative view is not like the Sakhar Rebbe, is really what you're trying to bring out. Most people will cite, let's say, the Orsameyach, who said, the Rav Meir Simcha, who says, who says that since the nation that was sovereign prior to the state, which was the British Empire, had acknowledged the legitimacy of the rights of the Jews to a home in Israel, um, so then there's no rebellion. The Jews are simply taking what was proper, what was guaranteed by them by the nation. There's no opposition for that. Even if you don't hold like that, the Cyclogon had a different way of looking at it. His approach was, let's say they violated the three oaths when they established the state and they fought the wars. Let's say, for argument's sake, he said, okay, so they did the Avera. But there's nothing in the three oaths that says that Jews who then come to Eretz Israel live here, Lentaira here, keep mitzvot here, they're in violation of anything. And it was, okay, so the Avera was done, but it's not an ongoing, it's not like, let's say, there are other Averas that a person is constantly violating it insofar as he's not stopping it. But here, it was done, and now it's over, <clears throat> and now we're here. Are among the various responses and, to this. And, and what's, the, what's the second oath? I remember the third is for the Gentiles. Right? We're not allowed to be Olaf, we're not allowed to take Eric's Israel by force, we're not allowed to rebel against the nations, and they're not allowed to afflict us too much. Um, <clears throat> significantly, I'm backtracking a little bit. Before the state was founded on June 19th, uh, something that you won't usually study in history books, but from our perspective, it's extremely important. On June 19th, 1947, so think back now. This is when everything is uncertain. Nobody knew what was going to happen next. Um, but they knew the British were about to withdraw. The British had already turned to the United Nations and asked for some kind of a plan, what we're going to do. <clears throat> and what was necessary, what the Yishuv, the Yishuv, when I use that term, I'm, I'm referring to the central brass in Tel Aviv. What they needed more than anything from the Jews was unity. They wanted everybody's support. They wanted to be able to go to whatever body there was, the British Mandate, the United Nations, whoever they had to appeal to for a state and say, we represent a unified Klal Yisrael. It doesn't work very well when you come and say, well, we're one faction, but there are a bunch of other factions that don't agree with us, then you don't know which address to, you can negotiate with. So they wanted some kind, of, uh, some kind of coherence. To get that from the religious world was not easy. For all the reasons we just described, the religious world was not on board, on board predominantly with the Zionist movement. So on June 19, 1948, they, they negotiated um, what were called the status quo agreements on religious life in this new Jewish state, many of which still pertain till today. And they affect our daily life in Eretz Israel, whether you realize it or not. And I think it's a pretty good idea to understand what these status quo agreements were. Keep in mind then that you know there was a deal reached. There was negotiation between two different sides, and a, and, a, and a deal reached. It wasn't just the you know the sovereign secular state trying to be nice to the religious, and we'll throw you this bone to uh, accommodate you. They actually needed the religious. This is before the state, and then they promised that these agreements would be adhered to in the course of the state. Um, 
This was the reason also the Igudas Israel, the religious political body, agreed to sign the, the Declaration of Independence. They said, okay, you're going to make sure that there's some kind of religious status quo. You know what I mean by status quo? This is the way it is. These will be the facts on the ground that everybody gets used to, and this will be life in Eretz Israel. The point of view of the Iguda was simply, let's try to get what we can for the good of Torah, to the best of our ability. Um, even though the state was mainly irreligious, and even though, as we'll see, many, most of the promises would be broken, the status quo arrangements till today are highly uh, contested, and, uh, but okay, there's at least something in terms of establishment of basic, basic issues. Here's some of the main uh, elements of the agreement. Um, the chief rabbinate, which we remember was already in place and was problematic from the inception, it was the state's way of trying to um, have, have hold sway over all religious institutions. We're the final decisors, and the chief rabbinate is resisted. That's why there are other organizations, the Badats, the, the, the various Bate uh, Din that are independent, that are nothing to do with the, the Rabbanut, and so on, um, resist this. But there at least, there's a, uh, there is an institution called the chief rabbinate that authorizes much kashus. They are in charge of Shabbos observance, insofar as there is Shabbos observance in the land. Um, they oversee things as diverse as burial, conversion, marriage, and divorce, having huge impact on, on many, many Jews. Um, there's a figure called the chief rabbi. To date, there's an Ashkenazi chief rabbi and a Sephardi chief rabbi because of the different views in the different worlds, and they don't see eye to eye on everything. There is, till today, a movement to try to unify that job and make one chief rabbi. So far, no, 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 not happening, but it may happen at one point. Um, the chief rabbi is a voice piece of the state. That's the job description, which makes the job kind of problematic. Even though we find some very significant rabbanim holding the job, um, it doesn't mean necessarily the gadol hador. And quite the contrary, it's controversial a lot of the time. Um, was definitely, I'm saying there sometimes were, sometimes not. It, just because, my point being, just because you're chief rabbi doesn't necessarily mean, after all, who gets to be chief rabbi? Somebody who's elected? That's never the way Torah works. We're not a, we're not a democracy, it's the gadol, whoever the gadol is. Uh, I mean, it may or may not be the gadol, but it's not inevitable. Also, oh, you're saying in, in, in like real life? Um, the, who decides the gadol, gadol is? Who decides how you, how you do this? Nobody. It's, a, it's what I've described here before as a pure meritocracy. The cream of the crop rises to the point that the gedolim are the people who are recognized as the leaders of the generation because everybody knows who they are. In the same way that on a natural breakdown, I apologize if this is repetition, I know I make, I make this point, but I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a misunderstood point that needs to be understood. In the base medrash, you have a problem with the Gemara. Who do you go to? How come? Every rabbi? But some rabbis know more than other rabbis, don't they? And after a while, you can pretty much figure that out, don't you? Not all, not all of us are equal. And on certain issues, you go to certain rabbis, and other issues, you go to other rabbis, no? And you know what? There are certain questions that are too big for these rabbis. So what do you do then? You bump it up. You then take it to Rav Samet. You know, you take it to a parents. And you know what? They're flummoxed by certain things too. So then you bump it up further. And there's a natural order in the world that the shilas, the hardest shilas, get bumped up to the biggest minds. 
It's a natural, that's why I call it a meritocracy. It only would happen if you're genuinely qualified for the job. There's no election, there's no position. We're gonna meet many of the Gedolim in the modern days, have no, hold no office, as was constantly true through history. We remember the Vilna Gaon never, he turned down all offices, he never wanted to speak publicly, he just was, he was the Vilna Gaon. Everybody just knew, okay, yeah, he's the guy on the door at the age of 20. Um, usually it doesn't work that way. What's that? Um, there are two recently elected chief rabbis, both sons of previous chief rabbis. Which one? Rav Yitzchak Yosef is, is the Sephardi chief rabbi, and Rav Lau, uh, Rav Binyamin Lau, I think is his name. Uh, he's not a familiar person to me. I'm sure he's a wonderful person, maybe the exciting, maybe the public talking for all I know. But you can't assume that about Chief Rabbinate. It may or may not be that because it's, again, democratically elected. Very much, yeah, there's a strong resemblance. And, and apparently he is, I, I know more about him. He's a more familiar uh, figure in the, in the religious world, a very, a, quite a, re a deservedly revered fig figure in the religious world. He lives very close to us. He does, Sephardi and Ashkenazi. He's more there, yeah, I think so. His name is certainly much more prominent than the Ashkenazi chief rabbi presently. Yes. Again, I don't know exactly what makes that, and it's not and for also, me to decide. The idea of there being a chain of command, there are several chains of command depending on what movement you follow. That, that may be, but I think there's certain things that's not entirely true. I'll tell you why. It's not like it, it, there's certain people who are simply perceived to know more Torah than others, and objectively they do. And one indication of that is on neutral, non-ashkafic, what you can consider maybe neutral, non-ashkafic issues. Let's say um, new advances in medical science raise questions that indeed have halachic precedent and discussion, but it requires somebody of immense mastery of all shots and post game to be able to determine who that is. In, on those questions, even, even no, well, the more conservative don't care about any of this. I'm saying, I'm saying that the modern Orthodox world is in cahoots with the Haredi world and saying, yeah, well, you know, they, they go to the same, to those rabbis. I mean, let's say medical ethics, you go to Nitzit Eliezer or Shlomo Zaman Orbach. No, there's certain names that you go to, and those are, those, their psaac is acknowledged by all these worlds. So then why is it that when it comes to, let's say, some of, like our topic here, Hashkafa, is that, well, then I'm picking choose, I'll have my own gadol. And then people are more apt to choose their own gadolim, even sometimes names that are not so prominent, that they wouldn't go to, let's say, with the same Shiloh and medical ethics, or Kashrus, or any of the myriad Shilohs we would have. I don't think, in other words, that it's, it's as you say, that it's so, it's, it, it, you know, everybody can have their own gadol. <coughs> um, Usually, they crown the chief rabbi. There's a ceremony. It's very goyish. And they crown him in a ceremony in the in the uh, in the shul in the on what's my call it the what's the name of the shul we talked about it the one on um, Karen Ayasod Street. I forget the name right next to the great synagogue. It's a pluralistic affair that's attended by clergy of other religions. Which, if you think about Torah, I mean other religions. I mean some of them, Christianity. That's a, that's that's Shituf, That's kind of a Zara. They're, they're there at the crowning of the chief rabbi. What are they doing there? We don't we don't have we don't have we don't acknowledge Avodah Zarah. Are Hindus there? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Right? And and oh well well the the the, the Galachim are there. The Galachim, the, the 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 Christian bishops. The Galach is one of the terms for, for for the Christian clergy. They display their crosses right there in front of the Aaron Kodesh. As if we're all one big pluralist, it's a small world, happy world, you know, it's a small world after all, united colors of Benetton kind of a, you know, thing going on here. Pluralist, in the, in the, in the interest of democratic pluralism, that's the chief rabbinate. Well, the 
That's kind of strange and it's problematic. I'm getting me started. We'll never get out of here. Not true. Not true, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. That's the basis of Christianity. And what you need, Daniel, I refer you, if this is a topic of interest, I'm into it myself. I, I, I've given this class before. It's up there online with, with my other classes, too. You can listen to what we say about Judaism and Christianity. It's not like you just said. Um, their status, it's a machlokus rishonim, but the, the accepted psak is like tosfos, that they're shituf, which is a, which is a variation of a vodazara. And that indeed they're not, they don't believe in the same God. It's, it's, it's uh, not better because they talk in semi-monotheistic terms, but because of this holy unity, this holy trinity, what they call, it's, it's a problem. You can't really get around the problem. But he doesn't the Muslims, though. Muslims may. Muslims, you're right. Muslims is far less problematic. Okay. Um, okay, that's the, that's the chief rabbinate. In uh, Shabbos, Shabbos, according to the status quo, agreements. Um, in some religious neighbors, neighborhoods, um, the streets are closed for Shabbos. That was agreed upon, meaning it's not, they're not doing Meishar in the favor when they close the streets, or B'nai Brock, or Telstone for that matter, when they close the down. That was part of the deal. They got the support, and therefore, quid pro quo, you do for me, I do for you. So that was part of the arrangement. Nobody's doing anybody's favors by having this. I say this because a lot of the time people say, well, the state's so nice to you, they let you have your own clothes. Well, no, they got our support as they needed it for diplomatic reasons. Um, now, the, in theory, all public, the whole public sector is closed on Shabbos, in theory. But the legal wording is ambiguous enough that it allows, let's say, public facilities to do what they call crucial work. Who, who decides what's crucial? Secular people do. It's not a halachic decision. Um, so, for example, how this comes out practically, Ashdod is one of the big port, valuable port centers in, um, in Israel. One would say it might even be called important. The, um, it, it's still, it, it, it's mostly functional on Shabbos, meaning the Ashdod port is Mechal Shabbos uh, because otherwise it would suffer a great financial loss, which we know is not a justification for being Mechal Shabbos. You lose all your money and still not be Mechal Shabbos. Um, public transportation stops on Shabbos everywhere, according to the status quo agreements, except where it doesn't stop. Uh, many businesses are closed, except those businesses that stay open. So, for example, this is all a movement. This is all a process that we'll see unfolding. In the, in the last government, there were big uh, movements to try to make, create more Chil Shabbos, more public works. Now the government... Uh, looks like on the, on the verge of a, of a coalition agreement, and it looks like it's going to be right-wing religious, so it looks like most of this will be uh, reinforced. But in 19, as of, as of, um, uh, as of uh, three years ago, 2012, in Haifa, Eilat, um, and Tel Aviv, they all operate buses on Shabbos. Okay, so it's sort of... And not entirely, and, and partly accommodating the various factions. It, it's predominantly not a religious place, so you're right. So then there'll be more, more, uh, more Chil Shabbos. Well, the country is less than a century old. Less than? Right. It's all a work in progress. All to be. I'm just describing that work in progress. Again, the goal of this class is not just history in a theoretical sense. We're trying to understand what the world is like today and why it, why it exists like this. It's not. Um, 
It's complicated. It's not 100% consistent. It's partly status quo, but then partly not. And in theory, the, the government and the policy of its institutions is to, ha is to keep things kosher. Uh, well, they define kosher, they, they, they certainly regular revenue is fine. I'm not talking about that, that issue right now. But on some, somebody would say that some level, there's, there's, everything's kosher. And indeed, non-kosher meat was forbidden um, throughout the land. Not allowed to raise non-kosher meat. Of course, all over the kibbutzim, all kinds of non-kosher animals are raised locally. I think over half the restaurants are, are not kosher. When they're not kosher, we're talking basar lavan, that's pork, uh, and, 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 and sea, uh, shell, shellfish, and all kinds of explicitly non-kosher uh, um, uh, foods are available. I'll comment on this. Let, yeah, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just let me finish this country segment, and then but let's comment. Is this a problem? Is this good for the Jews? Bad for the Jews? Hold off for just a second. Um, in, again, according to the law and according to, in theory, all government kitchens are officially kosher. All army kitchens are officially kosher. Um, this is theoretical. The mashkichim from the get-go, from the, from, the, from the early 50s, struggled in maintaining this. Compromises, trafing up, the, to use informal slang, trafing up the kitchens was a common phenomenon. Uh, unreliable kashus, it's one of the reasons why kashus in Israel is very complicated with all the various bodies overseeing, supervising kashus, precisely for this reason. Because so many people work to thwart, to undermine the whole effort of kashus. Um, there's sometimes overt hostility. People handing out ham and cheese sandwiches, if you've heard of such a thing, uh, as a way of trying to you know, de de deliberately get the, the religions. What all of this, of course, raises is a major topic, what's called in Hebrew, religious coercion, which let's look at it for a moment from the non-religious or semi-religious, what's called masorti, traditional perspective. Religious coercion, from their perspective, is one of the great evils of the world. That's a pluralistic idea. You have to live and let live. It's, my, it's your right to be religious. It's my right, every bit as strong as yours, that I don't have to be religious. And they resent it deeply. Sometimes it's their driving passion, this resentment against religious coercion. Uh, they would say, you know, the only thing that the closing public transportation on Shabbos does is it creates discrimination against poor people. Because the rich people, the poor people too, who are Mahal Shabbos are going to be Mahal Shabbos. You can't force them to keep Shabbos, they argue correctly. And therefore, all that means is that the rich people can go to the beach and the poor people can't. Sorry. It's a law of discrimination, is their point. It's a class law, not really one of religiosity. They make the point. More, more than that, and here's me now, here's me speaking, I can see another argument against religious coercion, and that is human nature. Um, I don't know if you, you're like this. I am, personality-wise, 100% this way. You push, I pull. I was the guy before I was religious who went to the co-cell without a keep in my head, and they said, now gather around me in a big circle. You have to put a keep on, and I made a ruckus. I didn't mean to make a ruckus. I just refused to put a keep on. And the more they argued that I have to have a keep on, the more I argued back. I said, I'm sorry. I, excuse me. Is this an Orthodox synagogue? I'm not aware that this is an Orthodox synagogue, I said. And then I said, uh, I'm sorry, where were you guys um, when Sahal, the Israel Defense um, Forces, 
liberated the Western Wall in the War of uh, the Six Day War in 1960. Oh, right, you guys are religious. You don't serve in the army, do you? With my arguments as a secular Jew, I've obviously changed somewhat since then. But I understand where they're coming from. They don't. You push, I pull. You tell me I can't do something. That's what I think motivates a person. Why would a guy? That's crazy. They they go in the streets passing out ham and cheese sandwiches. Why would you dafka do that? Why would any person want to do that unless you feel? They're going to force me to be religious. I'm going to show them that as much as they push, I'm going to be anti-religious and cause others to do the same. Is their mentality? All right. So then, what's the point? Why have these? Why have these uh, restrictions and so on? Since it seems to push so many people even further away from the Torah. I remember feeling this too in the chief rabbi. And I'm just about to get this now in terms of. Um, the requirements for marriage and so on, where um, if you marry through the rabbinate, is technically that's what people do. They have to meet with the rabbinson. Uh, the women have to sit there and hear about the mikvah. But if they have no plans to go to the mikvah, they're just sitting there seething in anger, anger and resentment that the that the that the policy is that they have to go through this. For them, it's not something they don't want to do. Um, so the other side is understands that you have now a state, you have an institutionalization. Uh, of, uh, you know, of, of the Jewish people and that if we don't somehow do our small part in trying to support Torah and mitzvot, we have, a, we have a, a responsibility and on a certain level share the blame in the Chil Shabbos and, the, and, the, and, the, and, and the, the breaking of the other mitzvahs. We have to do something. Um, one can again pick apart the strategy in which it's been done, the anger that it, it, that it, it provides, but um, the religious point of view is that we're here and we've got to try our best with the recognition that in every Jew is a what we call the pintle yid, is a, is a spark of, um, of, of, of the divine that calls out and really wants to serve Hashem and wants to keep the mitzvahs. So if somehow if you establish institutionally that all of these pieces are in place, that there isn't Chil Shabbos and there is at least possibility to get kosher food, the people might come around. There is a nascent Balchuva movement, even among Israelis, and if you have these institutions, maybe people would come around eventually, and since we're looking towards the long-term, Mashiach's gonna come, and everybody's gonna want kosher food, and everybody's gonna want to keep Shabbos, so you have to have that kind of vision and perspective. Um, Wait, did you see any problem with it, though? Like, having non-kosher food, or, like, there's no problem with it, though? I, I, I tried to present both sides. I at first explained from their perspective why religious coercion is so problematic. And then I tried just now to give at least some explanation why the people who do favor religious coercion try to do it to change no, their mind. I why they would do it, but is there any problem? Like, is there any Like, they're allowed to have right? Like, from we, a religious point of view? Yeah, we can't control what they do, you know? We can't, but we do have a principle. Kul Yisrael, the Rebbe Zebzeh, we're all in this together. And the Torah is very clear that, you know, it, it'd be easy to say, it'd be easy to say live and let live, right? Yeah. You do your thing, I'm okay, you're okay, all these other 1960s, 1970s uh, um, anodyne kind of, uh, you know, the platitudes that people say. But you can't say that in Klal Yisrael because we know that a Jew's Machal Shabbos in Tel Aviv, that directly affects you and me and Yerushalayim. But they don't believe that. They don't believe it, but we, but we do. And so it's not true that you can say live and let live and just let them do a thing. On some level, it does impact us. The question is, is how should we go about our business? How sh what kind of policy should we have or should we at least pursue towards that? And that's a question. That's not so clear in my mind. What would be the most effective way of causing the other people to want to be religious, to wanting to do these things willingly on their own? It seems to me, you know, somebody said this, I thought this was a nice approach. There are those Jews who take a 
coercion is kind of an attitude when they see cars driving by on Shabbos, they scream Shabbos, sometimes they throw rocks and such too, uh, which is not the way Chazonish condemned such behavior. He said, the ways of Torah are the ways of pleasantness, not throwing rocks. Um, but somebody I had a nice twist, and they said, we should indeed, when somebody, when somebody is driving past on Shabbos, we should yell, Shabbos, hot, delicious cholent, come on in. Plenty for everybody. Meaning it's the way, it's the approach. How do you go about doing this? Is really, you're arguing over, over um, not, not end goals. The end goal is that we should all come back to Torah. But how you go about doing that is, is, is uh, up, up for discussion so still. Did that idea that all Jews are responsible for one another really underpinning of why these, like, now, now after hearing that, I see that maybe this is like, not even secretly, but this is the reason why the, the Jews don't like the state. Because, right. Or why, why, Who, which, Jews, why, why, why religious Jews don't like the state. Because if you did, uh, if you were able to say live and let live, then it, it wouldn't be an issue if they were non-religious people that had their ideas of what the state was. But you can't say that from any religious perspective. Okay, so this everybody really, impacts everybody. So this is really the basis. So. This is a basis. It's one of the factors. Uh, it's, it's not the only basis because it's also the fact that they don't live like that either and there's been a concerted effort, one which we're going to elaborate on, to actually deconstruct the religious world and to, to influence religious Jews to become non-religious, which is personally threatening. Right, so the, it's complicated. All of these things, and I'm trying to present it with all the complications and wrinkles in the short time we have together. You see, Laska, and I have more to do today. So, what do you think about the, the sort of the, like the more already, more like religious Jews um, comparing the IDF to Cossacks? Well, I mentioned earlier today there are different voices in the religious world. I gave you, I gave you a bit of a sampling of a bit of a survey of some of them. Um, there are those like Satmar and Munkach and others who, who understand, who, who put things in very strong terms, who see Cossacks or Nazis or some very extreme terminology. They are the minority, and that's their view, and they understand, they, and they believe what they're doing, L'Shem Shemaim, is really working for the Mashiach to come, and that the, that the secular state is, 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 prevents that. Um, let me just then say, I'm not finished with all of the status quo agreement uh, issues. In, Yeah, so what we're going to continue with tomorrow, Bezras Hashem, is we will uh, we'll talk about separate schools, we'll talk about the army service, and, and then we're going to get into, um, we're going to learn, learn a, a little bit more about some of the Gedolim who are alive at this time. Okay, have a good, have a good afternoon.